Hello and welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about the current state of Iran's nuclear program, take a look at Iran's past nuclear activities, and discuss the path forward for a return to the JCPOA. My guest today is Kelsey Davenport, the Director for Nonproliferation Policy at the Arms Control Association. Kelsey, welcome to the Iran Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being with us. Um, let's start with today's, basically the current state of Iran's nuclear program. Tell us what this program is doing. What is it trying to achieve? How far have they been? Um, and then I want us to talk about the JCPOA and the limits on the program later after you explain. Sure. So Iran's nuclear program right now is uh, about three months or so away from being able to produce enough nuclear material if they chose to pursue a bomb. You know, that's what we call the breakout time frame. Uh, and this time frame you know, is established because of the violations that Iran has taken you know, of the JCPOA you know, dating back to May of 2019. Uh, so while this this time frame has decreased significantly from the 12 months established by the JCPOA, you know, I don't think there's any indication that Iran is dashing for a nuclear weapon or that they intend to do so in, in the near future. So right now, I think their nuclear activities are clearly about creating leverage to try to get you know, the other parties to the JCPOA to deliver on sanctions relief and to push the United States you know, back into the agreement. Uh, and I think that there are a few you know, reasons that that really support this assessment. You know, first, if we look at all of these steps that Iran has taken recently that violate its JCPOA commitments, you know, Iran has notified international inspectors ahead of time, and all these breaches have been conducted, you know, very transparently. So again, I think this is a signal that this is about leverage, uh, not about sort of pursuing a, a, a nuclear weapon. And, you know, a second thing that I, I think is, is important right now is that, you know, I Iran, I think, is in enjoying being in a space where it's clear that the United States has caused this crisis, that the Trump administration manufactured this crisis by withdrawing from the JCPOA and reimposing sanctions in violation of the accord, you know, while acknowledging that Iran was in compliance. Uh, so really, if we look at sort of who right now is kind of taking the international blame for having created this crisis around the JCPOA, the responsibility really rests on the United States. You know, but if Iran were to take, you know, any further moves that, you know, were really indicative of a dash towards a bomb or try to leave the JCPOA, you know, then I think that blame would, would start to shift. So right now, I think the proliferation risk of the program has certainly increased from when the JCPOA was fully implemented. But that I, I don't think we're going to see Iran, you know, taking any sudden steps, you know, towards a bomb or abandoning the JCPOA in the near future. Mm -hmm. And can you explain these steps that Iran has taken in the past year or so after about a year after the Trump administration pulled out of the deal and they started, as they call it, reduce their commitments to the JCPOA? Some reports call it violations of the limits of the JCPOA. What do you think these are? And um, explain some of these steps that they have taken in their program. 
So Iran has taken a, a series of actions dating back to May 2019 to, to breach limits put in place by the deal. And these actions have increased in seriousness you know, over that, that time period. You know, at the beginning, you know, Iran started by you know, resuming actions that had been you know, halted or rolled back you know, under the JCPOA. So it was re- essentially Iran was restarting activities that it had conducted you know, prior to JCPOA negotiations. Uh, And that began with Iran saying that it was no longer going to observe a stockpile cap on its enriched uranium. And then we saw Iran uh, slightly increase its level of enriched uranium. It was limited to 3.67% under the deal that it ratcheted up in July of of 2019 to about 4.5%. And then later on that year, Iran resumed enrichment at the Fordow facility and announced that they weren't going to abide by restrictions on research and development of of advanced centrifuges. So that was sort of the first set of of, of violations. And I think all of these were very manageable risks. As I said, a lot of this was activity that Iran had undertaken prior to uh, negotiations on the JCPOA. So it didn't really represent Iran gaining any sort of fundamental sort of new knowledge or, or expertise. Um, but the second set of violations you know, really just began you know, over, over the past month in response to a law that Iran passed in December of 2020 necessitating it to take certain actions to ratchet up its nuclear program. And Iran has embarked you know, quite quickly on beginning to institute you know, these, these activities that breached the JCPOA. You know, in the beginning of January, Iran started enriching uranium to 20%. You know, Iran did that, you know, pre-2013, but that level of enriched uranium is much closer to weapons grade, so it does pose more of a risk. Iran also accelerated uh, its uh, deployment of advanced centrifuges and is really now starting to enrich in large cascades using advanced machines that it hadn't before. So again, more knowledge there that they didn't have that they're generating and then coming up, I think quite seriously in February, um, February 21st, Iran mm-hmm. has said that it's going to reduce compliance with international inspections. And I think that could be a real point of friction between Iran and the European parties to the JCPOA that are very concerned about inspections and safeguards and have warned Iran against taking this step. Mm-hmm. So to date, I think the, the violations are manageable. But if we look too far at what Iran has in the future, I think then it could start to jeopardize the future of the JCPOA. Mm-hmm. And let's also talk about a new development. Iran has launched a new big rocket, basically the Zoljana um, test launch that we witnessed this week. Talk about how that complicates potentially um, efforts to return back to the JCPOA and how it's um, positioning Iran in uh, in this entire non-proliferation um, framework that's of interest to both the U.S. and also European allies and other parties to the deal. Well, one of the significant criticisms levied against the JCPOA is that it didn't include Iran's ballistic missile program. And I think there was a reason to make this connection between the nuclear program and the missile program if we're looking back at sort of Iran's pre-2003 activities. You know, at that point, you know, there is uh, evidence that suggests that Iran was looking at devising a nuclear warhead that it could fit onto its medium-range 
ballistic missiles. So there was, I think, a clear tie there between the interest in nuclear weapons at the time and the ballistic missile program. But since then, and since Iran abandoned its nuclear weapons program, you know, it's continued to invest in ballistic missiles. But I think the functionality and the role that those missiles play in Iran's security ha- has really changed, and that Iran now sees you know, its missiles, both its ballistic missiles and cruise missiles, as a deterrent uh, and a counter to adversaries in the region that have been able to purchase you know, much more sophisticated weaponry, you know, including from the United States, you know, over the past you know decade or so, while Iran's been under uh, the the UN arms embargo, uh, so I think you know now that tendency to lump Iran's ballistic missiles, you know, in with the nuclear program is a bit misguided, and that if you know, we're going to see any limits on Iran's ballistic missile program, you know, that would be you know best addressed you know through some type of regional security dialogue. Now, in terms of sort of recent developments, you know, Iran appears to be looking at solid-fueled rocket motors. Uh, And that is significant because those types of systems are more mobile and they're more difficult to preempt. And it looks recently like like Iran has developed a solid-fueled rocket motor for a, a space launch vehicle. Now, there are significant differences between space launch vehicles and long-range ballistic missiles. But there's a tendency to sort of conflate the two and assume that if a country has you know, a longer-range space launch vehicle, that they could turn that into you know, an ICBM that you know, wouldn't, in, in this case, you know, probably not be capable of targeting the United States, but but certainly, you know, reach much farther than sort of the 2,000 kilometer limit that Iran's put on its ballistic missiles. Um, but I would just underscore, you know, there are significant technical differences between long-range ballistic missiles, you know, and, and space launch vehicles that Iran would need to overcome if it chose to go in that direction. And there's not a lot of evidence that Iran is focused on extending the range of its ballistic missiles at this point. So I think, you know, pursuing something on missiles as part of a regional dialogue, you know, would be, you know, advantageous in terms of trying to, you know, stabilize the region. But I think it would be a mistake to try to lump ballistic missile negotiations, you know, in with any future nuclear talks uh, because the role of those missiles are, are different. And I think it would be a mistake you know, if the United States you know, continues to put too much emphasis on the risk posed by Iran's ballistic missiles, because that's just going to drive up the price that the U.S. would have to pay in any negotiations. Mm-hmm. And you and a number of experts, non-proliferation experts, have um, urged the Biden administration or warned that there's an urgent need for U.S. re-entry into the Iran nuclear deal. You're also one of the strong supporters of the JCPOA. I want you to explain um, for or remind some of our audience and also explain for others who don't know all the details about the Iran deal. What made the Iran deal a strong deal? First of all, what were the limitations put on the Iran nuclear program um, in the name of the JCPOA? And why do you think um, it was a, a strong deal? I view the JCPOA as a very effective, verifiable agreement. And I think the first two years of the JCPOA, when it was fully implemented between January 2016 and in May of 2018, demonstrate its effectiveness from a nonproliferation perspective. Uh, And that's because the JCPOA, I think, took a very comprehensive approach to looking at Iran's nuclear program. You know, 
on one hand, you know, it focused on, you know, blocking Iran's pathways to nuclear weapons, you know, by preventing it from being able to actually develop the necessary fissile material to do so. So there are two, you know, materials that you can use for a nuclear weapon, you know, highly enriched uranium or separated plutonium. And what the JCPOA did was through a series of limitations on the number of centrifuges that Iran could operate, you know, the size of the enriched uranium stockpile and the level of enrichment was ensure that if Iran ever tried to pursue nuclear weapons down the highly enriched uranium route, uh, it would take Iran about 12 months to actually produce that material. So the idea there was that there would be sufficient time for the international community to respond if Iran started to indicated that it it was about to to pursue nuclear weapons. Uh, And I think the restrictions on separated plutonium are are even stronger. You know, when the JCPOA was negotiated and, and, you know, still now, you know, Iran doesn't actually have a facility for separating plutonium from spent reactor fuel. Uh, And the reactor that Iran has under construction at Iraq is being modified as part of the JCPOA to ensure that it produces just a fraction of the material that would be necessary for a bomb on a yearly basis. And even that material is going to be shipped out of the country, you know, for the next 15 years. So you've got, you know, a 15-year block on the production of weapons-grade plutonium. And, you know, for 10 years into the JCPOA, you know, you have, you know, a one-year breakout time on the highly enriched uranium route. So the restrictions there, I think, are, are quite strong. Uh, but you know, even more notable, I think, are the monitoring and verification mechanisms that were put in place by the deal to ensure, you know, quick detection of any violations and to deter Iran from even attempting to, to violate the deal. And some of this includes continuous surveillance at key Iranian sites. Uh, it includes daily access for inspectors at certain facilities, like where Iran conducts enrichment at Natanz and uh, a former enrichment site uh, at, at Fordo. Uh, and it requires Iran to implement in perpetuity a much more intrusive inspections arrangement with the International Atomic Energy Agency, known as the Additional Protocol. Mm. And the Additional Protocol gives inspectors you know, access to a greater number of sites, uh, and it gives them additional tools for verification if, if issues emerge. Um, and there's another feature there that I think is, you know, is frequently misconstrued that, that really is quite important. Now, in the past, when the IAEA was investigating you know, allegations of illicit Iranian nuclear activity, uh, I- Iran responded in some, some cases by simply stonewalling the IAEA and not granting them access. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the JCPOA resolves that by essentially you know, creating a process whereby if Iran and the IAEA can't agree on access to a location in Iran, it could be any location, you know, even a military site, then the Joint Commission, which is, of course, comprised of the P5 plus one members in Iran, you know, can determine uh, what that access should look like. Uh, and Iran is com- compelled to, to comply with that access request or to be in violation of its obligations. And that period, you know, in total, you know, would not take more than, than 24 days. Uh, so it really ensures that inspectors have the access that they need to determine that Iran 
program is entirely peaceful and, and investigate uh, any allegations. So the combination of limits on the nuclear activities and the very intrusive monitoring mechanisms put in place, I think, really make it a, a comprehensive and effective agreement. Mm-hmm. And of course, the nuclear deal has many critics here in Washington and also in Israel, among some of other U.S. allies in the region, Saudi Arabia, UAE, we know were very uh, vocal against both the negotiations and eventually the deal Um And one of the main points that we hear critics talk about is the sunset clause. We heard Israeli prime minister saying that there's a need to completely get rid of the sunset clause in the deal. uh, Former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said that this is a very concerning shortcoming of the deal. And we've heard other critics talk about this sunset clause. Um, Explain what the sunset clause is and why was it put into the deal? Because in a way, it makes sense that um, to have a deal that would be indefinite without sunset clauses. Why were these um, dates put into the deal? And is there a way to extend them? So a number of limits in the JCPOA expire over time. And and this is what's commonly referred to as the sunset clauses. Most of these have to do with Iran's production of fissile material. So after 15 years, the limits on the stockpile of enriched uranium and the the level of uranium enrichment you know expires you know after 15 years you know the prohibition on separating plutonium is ended so so these are the the sunsets um, now critics often claim that you know these sunsets sort of pave the way for iran to pursue nuclear weapons and and i think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the jcpoa as a whole you know because there are provisions in the jcpoa that are permanent i mentioned some of the monitoring mechanisms that are permanent uh, but there's also a prohibition on certain activities relevant to developing the explosive package for a nuclear weapon you know, that are permanent. So the core principles of the deal that really serve as barriers to developing a weapon, you know, remain intact and, and, and remain in place. You know, as for sort of the rationale behind the sunsets, you know, if you look at sort of the history of negotiations on arms control or you know, even non-proliferation agreements, you know, most of them have you know these these sunset clauses. You know, they aren't really intended to be sort of indefinite agreements. Um, in part because I think you know there's the acknowledgement that if you know a state you know like Iran you know violates its commitments, uh, it you know returns to compliance and it. You know, then is you know is in line with its international obligations under the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, that there should be a path back to being treated like every other state that's party to to the NPT. Uh, so some of the reasons behind the restrictions, I think, you know, stem from from that, uh, and 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 I I think also you know, generally there is an understanding that that, ye, that negotiations in the nuclear policy space tend to build on each other. I mean, if you look, for instance, at U.S.-Russian arms control, you know, these agreements, you know, are usually set for a specific amount of time. You know, they can be extended or, you know, they may be renegotiated, you know, for more stringent limits or, or additional cuts. And yet, you know, we don't say that 
you know, because these limits expire, that, you know, Rush Allison has this pathway to, you know, unlimited, you know, expand in an unlimited way its, it, it, its nuclear arsenal. Um, so I think there is a legitimate reason to be concerned about the future of Iran's nuclear program and wanting to ensure that it's sort of entirely peaceful. But I think viewing the JCPOA as a failure because it has limits that expire uh, is, you know, a, a way of opposing, you know, the JCPOA, you know, without kind of looking at the intention of the parties to try to build on the JCPOA and without acknowledging that that this is sort of a regular method of conducting these types of negotiations and, 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 and policies. So on, on the sunsets, you know, I think the best way to, to address that issue, you know, for, for critics who are truly concerned is to support the Biden team's plan to return to the JCPOA and support, you know, follow-on negotiations that look at a longer-term nuclear framework for Iran or look at a nuclear framework for the region, because that's something that could be brought in, you know, as, as well and, and may be advisable given some of the concerning nuclear developments in the Middle East. And I want to talk about the big elephant in the room when we talk about the Middle East, uh, nuclear arms race in the region, and Iran being um, a party to these very strict uh, inspections regime. There's one state, essentially, with nuclear weapons in the Middle East who denies it but or, or doesn't admit it, uh, who's not a member of the MPT and is, talking about Israel, is one of the key factors in the calculations when you hear um, statements coming from Tehran. How does that uh, situation play out in, first of all, the negotiation process when uh, the U.S. and and Europeans are dealing with Iran and in the future, the prospect of the non-proliferation movement that's going on globally and not just in the Middle East? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think we saw around the negotiations of the JCPOA, you know, the Israelis try to put a tremendous amount of pressure on the process to you know, negotiate a deal that would have effectively eliminated Iran's nuclear program. And I think now that Biden is talking about restoring the JCPOA, you know, we're seeing again a lot of rhetoric you know, coming from Netanyahu and, and others around him about the need to renegotiate the deal, you know, in particular to eliminate Iran's enrichment you know, capabilities. And you know, in, in a perfect world, you know, eliminating Iran's uranium enrichment program, you know, would be ideal. But, you know, I think Obama realized, you know, early in the process of the JCPOA negotiations that that was unrealistic, that based on the extent of the program that Iran had developed, uh, based on, you know, how it had been treated in the past, you know, trying to purchase uranium fuel, you know, based on Iranian pride in the achievement of, of their centrifuges, that eliminating it, you know, was not feasible. Uh, so I think that as it will continue to see, you know, significant Israeli pressure you know, opposing reentry to the JCPOA, and then if the JCPOA is restored, to try to influence what you know longer-term framework negotiations look like. And I think that that is unfortunate because, as I see it, you know, every security challenge 
in the Middle East becomes more complicated if there's the threat of an Iranian nuclear weapon or a future Iranian nuclear weapon sort of hanging over the balance. So in my mind, you know, arresting Iran's nuclear development, you know, restoring the JCPOA, creating some stability around Iran's nuclear program, you know, for the next five, 10 years before these limits start to expire, can really help create space to, you know, address regional security issues. uh, And as I said, to think more holistically about the future of nuclear programs sort of in the Middle East writ large. And, To me, it seems like those types of of dialogues could really benefit Israeli security sort of in in, in the long run. Mm -hmm. And uh, talking about Iran's uh, weapons program, this is before 2003, around that time when, um, as you mentioned, Iran had some, some form of a weapons program. It wasn't very transparent. They're contradicting views and reports on how far they went. How much do you know about how far they went basically with that program, where they stopped, and what was the calculation to go that far and then to eventually move away from that from that program? So there's a lot that you know, we still don't know about all of Iran's nuclear weapons-related activities, you know, in part because Iran still continues to deny that it ever had a nuclear weapons program, uh, and because it hasn't been you know, completely forthcoming with international inspectors as they've looked into those past activities. Uh, but what seems clear is that Iran had an organized nuclear weapons program you know, up until 2003, And it seems like they had embarked upon a range of activities and developing the necessary technical capacities to build a nuclear weapon if they chose to do so. So that's not only producing the fissile material, but also looking at the explosives package for being able to detonate a nuclear weapon and looking at how to integrate a warhead into the tip of, of, a, of a ballistic missile. Uh, but it appears that those organized efforts, you know, stopped in 2003, you know, perhaps, you know, related to the fact that the United States invaded Iraq at that time, you know, alleging that Iraq had an illicit WMD program. Of course, you know, we, we know how that, you know, turned out and that, that the evidence for that wasn't there, but that may have played into Iran's calculation to halt that program. Now, between 2003 and 2009, it appears that Iran pursued some activities that would be relevant to developing a nuclear weapon, you know, but not as part of an organized program. And it was during that period in 2007 that the United States intelligence community released an unclassified threat assessment on Iran's nuclear program. And essentially, they concluded that the organized weapons program had stopped, but that Iran had developed the necessary uh, capabilities to develop a nuclear weapon, you know, if they chose to do so. And I mark that in particular, because I think that that really was kind of a game changer in terms of thinking about how to negotiate limits to Iran's nuclear program. I mean, once it was determined that, you know, Iran could produce a nuclear weapon if, if, if they wanted to, that they had the necessary knowledge and, and, and capabilities, then I think it had to become about uh, limiting their program, monitoring it to ensure early detection if Iran did that. 
and trying to politically disincentivize Iran from ever making that decision in the future. Uh, because at that point, the international community was past the point where they could stop and block Iran's you know, nuclear weapons efforts and essentially ensure that they never developed that capability. So as I said, you know, some of those discrete activities appeared to have you know, continued through 2009. Uh, but in 2015, when the IAEA sort of issued their final assessment on Iran's nuclear weapons program as part of the JCPOA process, you know, they indicated that there really was no evidence of illicit nuclear activity or weaponization activity post-2009. And that's very significant because the IAEA you know, likely had, would have had access to any intelligence information from the U.S., you know, probably from Israel, uh, that, you know, you know, th that they could have drawn upon that may have sort of contradicted that, that assessment. So the fact that they said there was nothing since 2009, you know, to me indicates that you know, U.S. intelligence probably doesn't have any indication of weaponization activities past 2009 either, because they would have fed that to the IAEA. And, you know, we even saw that again, you know, last summer in you know, June of 2020, when the State Department released its annual compliance report, you know, it reported on Iran's violations of the JCPOA, but it also concluded that Iran had not yet undertaken any key weaponization activities that would be necessary to, to produce a nuclear device. Mm -hmm. And now it seems like there is a will on both sides in Tehran and in Washington with the new Biden team in the White House of a mutual return to or to full compliance with the nuclear deal. Explain the process for this. We know the Europeans play an important role in, as the Iranian foreign minister said, choreographing this mutual return to the terms of the deal. How long do you think this is going to take? How fast does it seem like the both sides are doing it? And basically, how much time does each side need on the Iranian side to scale back their uh, violations of the limits and then on the U.S. side to essentially return to the deal and lift or ease sanctions as, as the Iranians expect? I think political momentum and political will will be really key in determining how quickly both sides can return to compliance with, with the JCPOA. You know, from a technical perspective, I think Iran could easily reverse and roll back its violations of the deal, you know, probably in, in, in less than three months. And certainly that would be enough time for you know, the Biden administration to you know, do the necessary paperwork to lift U.S. sanctions and return the United States to, to compliance with, with, with its obligations. So from a technical perspective, you know, I, I don't see a lot of barriers. I mean, there'll be a few things that need to be resolved regarding some of Iran's advanced centrifuges that aren't covered by the deal. But I think, you know, in general, these are quite manageable, you know, quite manageable issues. I think the more challenging part, you know, as, as you suggested, is going to be in, in the sequencing. And, you know, what we've heard already from the Biden team and, you know, out of Tehran suggests that neither the United States or Iran is going to want to be perceived as taking the first step back into compliance and neither is going to want to be perceived as acting you know, unilaterally. So I think that comes back to the importance of coordination and ideally trying to pursue either sort of a phased return to compliance by each side or, you know, agree upon a date at which point both sides, you know, will announce that they've returned to compliance, you know, with the JCPOA. I think there are sort of pros and cons to, to each approach. You know, I'm not terribly surprised that we haven't seen 
a lot of quick action, you know, yet from the Biden team, just given the fact that, you know, they're still getting key people in place. You know, it was only about a week ago that the Iran envoy was named. So I think they have a lot of staffing up to do and then a lot of, you know, coordinating with with U.S. allies and, and partners in the JCPOA and, and coordinating with Iran. Uh, but I'm hopeful that, you know, once the ball gets rolling, Iran and the United States will be able to move fairly quickly. And I hope to see in the next few weeks a strong signal from the Biden administration that gives President Rouhani the space to delay this February 21st requirement that Iran reduce compliance with international inspections. Because as I said, these violations that Iran has planned down the road, I think could further complicate any re-entry to the JCPOA. So ideally, you know, in the next few weeks, you know, we'll start to see action uh, you know, it sounds like, you know, the foreign ministers of the, of the, um, of the United States and the European parties to the deal are, are, are planning to meet. And hopefully then, you know, we'll actually see some solid signals from the Biden administration about their intention to return to the JCPOA and perhaps a reciprocal, you know, signal from Iran, you know, putting off some of these new violations that I think will then create sort of that space of a few months that will be necessary to return each side to compliance. Well, we'll have to wait and see what happens in the upcoming weeks and then the months ahead in the new Biden administration here in Washington and with the outgoing Rouhani team in Tehran. Well, Kelsey, I want to thank you for joining the Iran podcast. Thanks so much for having me. That was Kelsey Davenport, Director for Nonproliferation Policy at the Arms Control Association. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran Podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, goodbye.